Good morning. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to be here and speak to you this morning. I cannot tell you um, how privileged I feel that Chris uh, would ask me uh, to come talk to you. And uh, it occurred to me yesterday that um, the last time I was in a church was in February. And if you're like me, this is the longest I've ever been on Sunday mornings, not in a church with my brothers and sisters. I'm sorry I'm going full pike this morning. <laughs> I warned the, the, the ministry team that might happen, but I was really overcome by that. And so um, bear with me. I'm going to do my best this morning um, to share with you. Uh, some things that God has put on my heart. Uh, I'm especially excited that um, Chris asked me to, uh, to come in and share some things about Daniel. Uh, for those that have been in my class, uh, we, we studied Daniel in the verse-by-verse class a while back. Uh, but I've also been able to, to study Daniel in some other ways here recently. And, and it was just really excited. I was excited when Chris said they were going to do Daniel and we were going to be studying it as a church. And, and now even more so that I get to share a couple of things. Um, so, we're going to look at a whole chapter this morning, um, and normally that's not the way I teach, um, but before we get started, I wanted to share with you something that uh, I saw in the news earlier this week that kind of jumped out at me. Um, hold on, I think I have a clicker this morning, let's see if this works. And here we go, okay. Um, I don't know if you guys uh, know who this is. Um, this, uh, this gentleman, Jonathan Steingard, frontman for the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson. Uh, Hawk Nelson sings songs like uh, Live Like Your Love, Diamonds, Drops in the Ocean, Sold Out, and He Still Does. Um, well, this week he came out on social media and basically said um, he had lost his faith. He didn't know that if, if he believed in God anymore. And so I dug into some of the things that he was saying, and I'm not going to put words in his mouth. Uh, I actually want to read to you some of what he said, because it's pertinent to the truth I want to share with you guys this morning. So I want to to, to read what he said. Um, This is what he posted. He said, If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Can he not do anything about it? Does he choose not to? Is the evil in the world a result of his desire to give us free will? Okay, then, what about famine and disease and floods and the suffering that isn't caused by humans and our free will? If God is loving, why does he send people to hell? My whole, my whole life, people have always said, you have to go back to what the Bible says. I found, however, that consulting and discussing the Bible didn't answer my questions. It only amplified them. Why does God seem so angry in most of the Old Testament? And then all of a sudden, he's loving Father in the New Testament? Why does he say not to kill, but then instructs Israel to do the same? Why does God let Job suffer horrible things to win a bet with Satan? Why does he tell Abraham to kill his son? Um, more killing again. And then basically say, just kidding, this was a test. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? More killing. If God can do anything, can't he forgive without someone dying? I mean, my parents taught me to forgive. Nobody dies in that scenario. I was, and this is, this is what really jumped out at me, I was raised to believe that the Bible was the perfect word of God. I began to have questions and doubts about that. It seemed like there were a lot of contradictions in the Bible that didn't make sense. And when I began to believe what the Bible was simply a book written by people as flawed and imperfect as I am, that was when my belief in God truly began to unravel. As I read those words, it broke my heart for a lot of reasons. One of them being that um, there are... uh, Steingart's not the first person to ask these questions. These are not new questions. He's not the first person to think of them. And there are answers 
to these questions. But that, that's not the point. That's not what I want to share with you. Instead, what jumped out to me are some things that he said about the Bible itself. The problem is, I believe we failed him. I think we failed him as a church in the way that we sometimes teach the Bible and helping people understand that we have to be careful not to approach the Bible like we moderns approach every other book. Because that's a mistake. And the mistake that he made reveals a problem when we read Scripture this way. When we, we read the Bible uh, at our peril when we read it like a modern. And what I mean by that is somebody that lives in the here and the now. When we live and, and, uh, in, in our context and read the Bible as a modern, we tend to read the Bible like a how-to manual. Because we read those, right? We tend to read the Bible like a history book, which are great but they have certain rules and parameters about how they're written today and, and how they're supposed to be put together. We tend to read the Bible like a consumer, as if it were a dictionary or Google, and I just go there for my answers, and they're the answers I want, and I can get them whenever I want, however I want, that sort of thing. It's like a reference book. That's a problem. Moreover, we read the Bible specifically from the perspective of the New Testament, and the Gospels in particular sometimes divorced from their Jewish perspective. And that's one of the things Chris has talked about a lot, and I think it's very, very important. And thus, if we divorce the New Testament from its Old Testament Jewish origins, two things happen. We either want to view the story of Jesus as simply the story of man and God, not of Israel and its king coming to bring his kingdom to earth, or we read the Gospels as if that's where the story begins, Separated from the rich record and history of God's interaction with His chosen people, we're left with an impoverished, disorienting, and sometimes distorted view of Jesus, His mission, His church, and His kingdom. N.T. Wright does a really good job of, of explaining this in his book, How God Became King, which I'd highly recommend. But here's the thing. I want to encourage you today to see the Bible differently. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm, I'm used to teaching, just talking. But today, I felt like it was very important that I say exactly what I needed to say. So I've written them down. That's unusual for me. Bear with me. But I want to make sure that the words I speak are clear today. I love teaching the Bible verse by verse. Anybody that's been in my Sunday school class knows that. Um, and, and our class is appropriately named. We've been in Genesis forever, and we're basically on chapter 5. So Chris and Paul will be uh, digging further into Daniel chapter 4 later on. So I'm not going to teach that way today. And I'm actually really excited to see the things that they're going to talk about in Daniel chapter 4. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to back up from Daniel chapter 4. We're going to look at the story, but we're going to look at it within the context first of Daniel and then the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end, because I want you to see it as it's meant to be seen and how it would have been read by the early church and how specifically how it was read by Jesus. And that's a really cool thing, because if we read this story in isolation, it's a weird story about a dream with trees and people losing their mind and wandering out into the woods. You read that in isolation, that's weird. There's a lot of weird stories in the Bible, but I promise there's more to it than that. Because we, as a church, believe that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now, I will go ahead and tell you, I totally ripped this off from the folks over at the Bible Project. For you guys who don't know, I love these guys. These are the guys that make the, the videos. I highly recommend using them. But I, I think it's fair to say, as a church, we believe this. And when you read the Bible, you understand that every part of it 
from the first page to the last is about Jesus. But you have to know how to look for it. You see, here's the deal. The Bible does show us how to live, but it's more than that. It's more than a manual, and it's more than a scientific text, uh, and it's more than a history book. These are all good things, but the Bible is more like a piece of art. It's creative. It's beautiful. It's like a love letter. It's like a painting. It's like a symphony. It's like an opera. It's like a novel. It's like an epic. It's like your favorite movie, but it's much more even than that. And why don't we have simple how-to manuals? I mean, God could have just given us do's and don'ts, and that's it, right? I mean, we could have gotten that. That's what he could have shared with us, but he didn't. Because that's not how we're made, and that's not how you reach the human heart. I love the way James K. Smith put it in his book, You Are What You Love. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. When was the last time you were moved by a math textbook or a science text? I don't know. Some of you guys may be weird that way. I don't know. You, you math teachers, that kind of thing. Uh, or a science text or an accounting ledger. No. They're full of information that's helpful. But it's stories. It's images, it's sights, it's sounds that move us, and that's what the Bible is full of. And Daniel is a major piece of a huge symphony where we have themes that were introduced in Genesis that are recurring there, and they're going to keep going until the finale on the last page of, a page of Revelation. So while the peculiar story of Daniel and his friends in their captivity in Babylon are instructive and interesting, they're part of a much larger work of art. And it's only in taking a step back that we can see the majesty and the grandeur, and the genius, and the artistry of the Creator. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Now, to talk to you about this today, I'm going to try something with you, okay? Um, I will go ahead and tell you, I had some things I was going to share, and I found out because we're doing Facebook Live, if I did that, they would mute us. So we're not doing that today. So here's the thing, though. Um, we're going to have to play a little audience participation, okay? Um, because one of the ways in which Scripture, I'm trying to kind of get this idea across, is Scripture in some ways is kind of like a symphony. It's kind of like a soundtrack where you have these themes that are introduced and they come back again and again and again, and those move us. In fact, I would venture to say I can hum a few bars of some music for you and you will immediately be able to do the rest. So I'm hoping you can do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hum a few bars of something, and I want you to finish it up for me, okay? So we're, we're going to see if this works, okay? So, so here we are. Reach back into um, the, the, the misty past of your childhood and try to draw on this. Here we go. dun da dun da dun da dun da Nice! You did do it. That's awesome. Okay, what is that? Indiana Jones, absolutely, okay? Okay, how about this? Da-dum, da-dum, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yes, okay, what's that? Easy, easy, okay, a little harder. Okay, what's that? Oh, not Star Trek. What is it? What is it? It's E.T. Yeah, it's E.T. Yeah, sure enough, it's E.T. Um, okay, now an easy one. Dun, 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 dun. 
That's for you, Chris. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's obviously Star Wars. Okay, here's the thing. I was a huge, huge fan of Star Wars as a kid, okay? And as such, I was also a huge fan of soundtracks, and probably the soundtrack I listened to more than anything I owned growing up was a record, actually it was two records, of The Empire Strikes Back. And the thing that I discovered in listening to that was not only do you have the Star Wars fanfare, but you also have themes for every single character in the movies. And one of them is, here we go, Da 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 da. Nice. Who's that? That's Vader's theme. It's the Imperial March, right? Those are instantly recognizable. Many of you, it's like immediately you know these. They come back to you. They probably conjure images or memories or things like that. That's the point. John Williams and other composers are geniuses that way. They know that. They know these things draw on you in ways that me just telling you about them doesn't. And here's the cool thing about Star Wars. All of those characters had, had a theme. Luke has a theme. Leia has a theme. Han and Leia have a love theme. Yoda has a theme. They all have themes. And anytime they show up in the film, you hear in the background that theme. And it fits into the larger piece of music, but it comes back to you over and over. And, and there's a one scene in particular, if I could show you, I wish I could show you this, because it was just a genius thing that was done in the most recent Star Wars film. Chris, I know you think the last film was garbage, but we'll discuss that later. Um, so here's the thing. In the last film, there's this amazing scene where the, the main character, the protagonist, the hero, Ray, needs a spaceship, but the only spaceship there is underwater. And Luke comes out and he raises the spaceship out of the water. And in the background, I noticed as I was listening to this, it started, because I notice weird things like this, it started with Luke's theme playing in the background. But as the X-Wing came up out of the water and, uh, and Luke was moving over, it changed from Luke's theme to Yoda's theme. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And if you're a fan of Star Wars, you know why. Because it was the same scene from Empire Strikes Back when Yoda lifted his spaceship out of the water. And, and we have totally geeked out at this point. And my apologies for you guys that don't like that stuff. But here's my point. Great works of art do that. When I heard that music... It stirred something in me, and it made me go, oh, that's so cool. That's so beautiful. It's like, a, it's like repeating this thing that happened before, and that was the point. It was meant to make you think about something that happened before. In the same way, when I hear that Raiders of the Lost Ark theme, I want to go grab a bullwhip and swing from a tree and, like, rescue people. I mean, when I, when I hear E.T., I feel like I should, you know, be riding my bike through the sky. When I, when I, when I hear Jaws, I want to get out of the water, right? <laughs> When I, when, I, when I hear Star Wars, I want to grab a saber and I want to save the galaxy. Lists don't do that for us. They don't. Scientific manuals don't do that for us. That's what I want you to understand about this. It was written much more like a soundtrack and a symphony than it is, like I said, with us moderns who want what we have. So... All that being the case, I want you guys to know what this thing is called. This thing that I've just you know, showed you is called a motif. It's a recurring subject, theme, idea, 
especially in literary, literary or artist, artistic or musical work. Uh, and in music, it's actually called a leitmotif. You can go to YouTube and you can find these because there's really nerdy music people that love to do these things, and I like to listen to these things too. But that's what this is. That's what it's called. The Bible is full of these themes and motifs. Um, the Bible Project guys, they like to call it design patterns. They're patterns that are established early on, and you keep seeing them over and over again. Okay? So what does that have to do with Daniel chapter 4? Well, I'm glad you asked. So here's the thing. Like I said, we're going to run through Daniel chapter 4 rather quickly because I want you to see the story in its entirety, so we're only going to read pieces of it. Okay? So we know in the last chapter we had um, Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace, and we've had that, and we've, we've had a lot of other kind of weird stories already, and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 4, and the perspective actually changes. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This does not sound like a guy who was recently throwing folks in a fiery furnace, right? This is, this is a guy who's talking about the king of the universe. He's talking about, you know, the, the Jewish God. And that's kind of crazy, this, pers this perspective uh, shift happens. Well, moving along, basically, he's going to have a dream. Sound familiar? We've done this before, right? In Daniel, we've seen this before, but this dream's a little different. So in this dream, he says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew, and it became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now that's, that's interesting, that's a little different, but the, but the vision continues. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, thus, chop down the tree. And lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the ends that the living may know know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Okay, just got weirder, right? So he, he dreams of this tree, and then he dreams about this thing called a watcher coming and saying, nope, done, chop it down, put it down, put a band of iron around it, and oh, by the way, we're going to give you a beast's mind, and you're going to be out in the dew of the earth and all that, just weird stuff. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he does what he's done before. He goes to somebody to try to interpret it for him. And who does he go to? He goes to Daniel. And Daniel has bad news. Daniel's bad news is basically this. King, I have bad news for you. You're the tree, and it's going to be bad. And, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of says, well, what do I do? And this is Daniel's only response. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel basically says, repent, 
I mean, that's pretty much what he says. Be a just ruler. Do the right thing. That's what you should do. And you should do it starting now. Well, what happens? Fast forward a little bit. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And then all of those crazy things that said would happen, happened. He lost his mind. He thought he was an animal. He basically went and and lived out in the pasture for a while. And I cannot wait to hear what Chris says about the psychology behind that. Because there's all sorts of commentaries written about people that think they're animals. And and that, that happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But at the end of it, he does have his faculties restored to him. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, I love this because, hey, nice, neat, tidy, it tells us what the story's about, right? And when you start looking at commentaries and sermons on Daniel chapter 4, they all come to this because it is true. It's a fairly straightforward a story about how you need to acknowledge God's providence for everything you have, including your rulership, and you also need to be a good ruler in the midst of all of that. True. But here's the thing. There's a whole lot more there. An astute Jewish audience steeped in the sacred Torah wouldn't see just that. They would see themes. They would hear music in the background that they had heard before. They would see things that maybe for us we don't you know, immediately jump to. These themes that they hear are going to be established in Genesis. And they're going to be things, uh, they're going to be themes, design patterns, and motifs that begin on page one, and we will see on the last page of Scripture in Revelation. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk briefly about some themes in Genesis, because I want you guys to see them. Now, if you guys have been in my class, you're already going, I know where he's going with this. Because you're, you're already familiar with these design patterns and these themes. We've already talked about them. But for, for those that haven't, even, even if you haven't been in my class, you're probably immediately thinking, okay, yeah, I know some of these stories in Genesis. I kind of know what's going on there. So, for instance, if you read the account of Genesis and creation, Genesis talks about the creation of what some, some you know, commentaries would call like a cosmic mountain. It's a mountain where heaven and earth overlap, and on top of that mountain is Eden. And that's where heaven and earth are together. And it's in that place that man can commune with God. And that's what we see. We see man walking in the garden with God. And that's a really cool theme there. We've got the creation of, uh, of this garden at the top of the mountain. We've got rivers associated with the mountain as well. We've got plants and animals that are created there, but also separated from man. Man's creation is unique. That's another thing. In fact, not only is his creation unique, humans, unlike anything else that had been created at this point, were made in the image of God. And they were called to be co-rulers with God. They were literally called to reign in the garden over the beasts and everything else that are there in the garden. 
So they are literally meant to image God. Not just, we're not talking about physically here, we're talking about they're meant to be kings like God is and to rule like God would in God's way with God's wisdom. And if that's all that had happened, that'd be a great story. But there's actually a whole lot more to it. Next, we're going to be introduced to a tree, a tree of life, a tree of life that's made available to the humans in the garden. But then we're going to have a second tree introduced. This tree is called the, you probably, what do we call it? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? That's, I actually like the translation, the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Tov and Ra are the Hebrew words there. Evil kind of has some connotation to it, but good and bad maybe is a little bit different. But basically, this tree is going to represent a test. We're going to have the introduction of this tree. It's a second tree, not the tree of life. And the man and the woman are going to be tempted to take from that tree. And they're going to be tempted by this character, this serpent, uh, this, this, this uh, character that's going to show up again and again. And they're basically going to be given the choice. Will you trust and eat from the tree of life, which is what God said, or will you take matters into your own hands and choose for yourself good and bad? Will you choose for yourself and decide what good and bad is? Here's what's crazy. If you look all through, throughout the, the rest of the creation in Genesis, every time God creates something, he says what? It's good. It's good. It's good. He's the one deciding. We get this tree, and all of a sudden, guess who gets to decide? Man and woman. They get to decide what is good and bad. And what do they do? They choose. And there's a whole lot more to that, but basically, it's a failure. They fail the test, right? They choose from the tree of knowledge, not God's choice, their choice. And what happens? We now have a conflict that is between the seed of the woman and the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush his head. The serpent will, will uh, um, strike his foot. And we know there's going to be a conflict from here on out. Okay, Exile from the garden. They're going to get kicked out. Because once you've made that choice, you get kicked out. So you don't have access to the tree of life anymore. And so they're kicked out into exile and forced to leave. Alienation and fear from one another. And alienation and fear from God. Or fear of God. And then murder, war, and uh, uh, attempts at being like God follow from there on out. And there's more. There's a ton more. Okay, But I wanted just to see these right off the bat. So this one should be pretty straightforward. Guess which of these themes we're going to talk about in Daniel chapter 4? A tree, right? A good Jewish audience reads Daniel chapter 4, and they're going to read about that tree in a very different way than if we weren't really thinking about it to begin with. Because here's the deal. You might not know this, but guess what? Trees are on the first page of, of Genesis and the last page of Scripture. I want to share this quote with you. This is really this is a very interesting book. It's called Reforesting Faith, What Trees Teach Us About the Nature of God and His Love for Us. Matthew Sleeth said this, Other than God and people, the Bible mentions trees more than any other living thing. There's a tree on the first page of Genesis, in the first Psalm, on the first page of the New Testament, on the last page of Revelation. Every single theological event in the Bible is marked by a tree. Whether it's the fall, the flood, the overthrow of Pharaoh, every major event in the Bible has a tree, a branch, fruit, seed, or some part of a tree 
marking the spot. Every major character in the Bible appears in conjunction with some tree. Now, here's what's really cool, and this is lost on us. This is part of that beauty of what this thing was written. It was really originally written in a different language, right? And the language is Hebrew, and the word for tree is etz. And here's what's weird. That's it. And it totally depends on context, how you describe it. So a branch is an etz. A tree is an etz. An ark made of etz is made of wood, right? All the, and so if you're reading this from the original poetic language, it really would strike you how often you would see this over and over and over and over again. And it's lost on our ears because we, we don't read Hebrew, right? Um, so here's the thing. This introduction of this idea or concept of a tree of life, you might be thinking, uh, Keeling, this is a bit of a stretch. Except we actually see the term tree of life. We see it again in Proverbs. Um, we see it... Um, obviously here in Daniel, where he talks about this tree. Notice how he describes the tree, too. The trees whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. This was a tree that's meant to bring blessing. So any Jewish reader would say, oh, that's, that's, like, a, that's like a tree of life. Like in Proverbs. Proverbs literally says... She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. I didn't realize until I started studying this that in many uh, congregations, many um, synagogues are actually called tree of life. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are often referred to by practicing Jews as the tree of life. So literally, the words of God are the tree of life. How about this? Uh, there's other uh, statements. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise, Proverbs 11.30. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And, lest you think this is just an Old Testament thing, let's move to the New Testament. Um, whoop. I think I'm missing a slide. Um, so I'll just share this with you. This pattern holds true in the New Testament. Paul wrote that Christians are like branches grafted into Israel's tree trunk. Jesus declared that the kingdom of heaven is like a tree. He also said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. The Torah itself is referred to as the tree of life. And, and man, it really makes you think about Mark 4, 4. When Jesus is being tempted in the desert... He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's interesting is he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 there. He's literally saying that, that the word of God is like fruit from a tree. That's what you live on. That's what you have. So like I said, what we have here with Nebuchadnezzar is this idea that he is like a tree of life. And here's the cool thing. It's like he's been given an option or a test to continue to be that. It doesn't have to be, but he's given the option to be that. But he fails the test. Notice what he says here in verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? For him, it was all about him, right? And by the way, this isn't the first time we've seen him do that. 
I want to read to you just a couple of these themes, and I want to be real clear in how I, I say this. Nebuchadnezzar was made in the image of God, like we all are, and given the choice to image God well by co-ruling with him, following his wisdom. He could have been a tree of life for his whole kingdom. Babylon could have been, it could have been an amazing story for God. He, was, he saw miracles, right? He saw all these things. He was given a test. Will you acknowledge God or will you choose your own wisdom? He failed the test, right? The test, he chose himself. And he'd already done that before, right? He'd already made, you know, images of himself. How about that? Instead of ruling and blessing man and beasts alike, he is exiled. Exiled? He's kicked out. He's kicked out of his own court. And not only that, instead of serving beasts, he becomes a beast. He literally becomes an animal. Instead of reflecting the image of God, which humans were supposed to be, you're just like the animals. How about that? By the way, I cannot wait to hear what you guys say about the next couple of chapters, because we're going to have these kingdoms that are likened to beasts, right? And, and there's other places where we, we, we see that theme. The beast imagery becomes even more powerful in the chapters that follow. And, and, and like this, Daniel is going to be given another test, and he's going to pass his test, and he's going to be thrown to the beasts. And guess what? The lions are at peace with him, Right? So it's like that same test in reverse. So we're seeing these themes. We're hearing that music subtly in the background that we had seen all the way from the beginning of Genesis. So what? Might be your question. Okay, that's interesting, John, but uh, I don't really, you know, what, what's kind of what's the point of all this? I said before that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus, and therefore every story, every song, every echo of Scripture was building to that moment in the Gospels when Jesus proclaimed that He was the Son of Man. How, you ask? Jesus came as a true King and the image of God. Jesus was also tested in every way and tempted like Adam in the desert by the same tempter. He was also surrounded by beasts. Jesus was given the opportunity to do it his way or God's way. Like Moses, he taught his sermons on a mountain. He was transfigured on a mountain like Eden. He went up to Jerusalem, Zion, a mountain. Then Jesus gave his chosen people, the Jews, his people, the test, to accept his new kingdom or to choose their own way. Do you choose the tree of life or do you decide what is right and wrong? The Jews chose their own tree of knowledge of good and bad, and they hung the image of God on a tree, on a high place, on a hill. The cross, and I'm not the first to say this, was like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But Christ transforms the tree. The cross went from being a symbol of torture, punishment, death, and shame and was sanctified and turned into a tree of life. This is awful beauty. This is magnificent tragedy turned to comedy. This is epic narrative. This is the best story ever told. And it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. All the way, like I said, to the end of the book. We hear the song again about the tree. In Revelation 2, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, 
which is in the paradise of God. Through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In Revelation twenty-two fourteen, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of his, this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. That's just one theme. I got more, but obviously I'm not going to share those with you today. Um, my heart for what you hear today is that I want you to understand this is not a science text. This is not something we get to dictate to. It dictates to us. This is so much more than what we could even hope for it to be. And when we read it like a modern, we miss it. We miss the point. One final so what. Okay, Keeling, these are themes. But what about me? What about today? What about my life? What does this have to do with me, my family, that difficult person I live with, I work with, that's my boss, for that difficult situation, for that temptation. What does this have to do with me? We all are tested daily with a tree of knowledge of good and bad. We are daily and every moment given the opportunity to choose our way or God's way. He offers us the tree of life, the word of God, manna from heaven, daily bread, Jesus himself. We're given the opportunity to image God and even be adopted into his family, his chosen people. And we're invited to partake of the tree of life and thereby literally by the power of God becoming like him, a tree of life for others. Or we can choose our own way, our own devices, our own politics, our own schemes, our own plans, our own definitions of good and bad. Jesus is simply asking you to leave behind that failure and to choose him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for making things so clear. Forgive us in our ignorance for putting you on trial with all of our why questions. Instead of in humility asking more, what are you doing here, God, questions, or what do we do next questions. Father, have mercy on us where we have chosen to decide good and bad on our own terms. Forgive us where we have chosen that tree and in instead of choosing you. Father, have mercy on us. And God, help us by your spirit and by your power and by your mercy to choose you instead of our own way. And I pray all of these things. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>